And if you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you now to go to John chapter 5 with me this morning. John chapter 5. Really, I hope this sermon is almost a setup for you in regards to the Lord's table. It's funny how <clears throat> when you read the Bible, you come to certain passages, and they're passages that you know, but when you really go and read them, you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? And this is one of those passages for me. I have read this passage. I don't think it's an exaggeration for me to say I've read this passage hundreds of times. I can almost quote it. But there are several key points in here that I found myself going, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? Where am I supposed to go with this? And so to sum it up, I really want to encapsulate the 18 verses in this statement. You're going to learn about Jesus' power to heal in here but you're ultimately going to see his authority to save. You're going to see his power to heal. The Bible is filled, especially the Gospels, with examples of Jesus healing people. But the idea that he has authority, where we don't all get the heebie-jeebies, because not a lot of you went, oh, great, a sermon about authority. Because we don't have a positive word association with the word authority. But I would say, if you really get it, man, you love this word. In fact, you need it in your life. So we're going to begin the next chapter of John. I've now gotten through a whopping four chapters. All right? Uh, I'm doing better than I even thought I was going to do for the speed of by which I'm going through these verses. And now John is going to plead with us as he's been doing thus far in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, to not only know about Jesus, he wants you to know him, accept him, worship him, believe in Jesus Christ. Why? John chapter 20, 30, and 31, right? So that you can have life eternal. Life eternal. Not your best life now. If anything, if I want to make sure everybody gets... Guys, I really hope you'll break out into hives when anybody tries to convince you that Jesus died so you and I could have our best life now. In fact, that's the essence of this passage, all right? Chapters 1 through 4 have been about, really, the early, early days of Jesus. In fact, John chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 give you more of the really early days of Jesus than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. They kind of jump right to post John the Baptist, whereas John in chapters 1 to 4 really deals with the early, early days. We've seen him announced in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. He was heralded. He was sought after. We've learned how intimately six of the 12 disciples came to follow him. In chapter 2, we saw the authority of Jesus. We saw our first glimpses of Jesus' authority. Remember when he cleansed the temple? And he turns over the tables and he drives the money changers out of the Solomon's colonnade. In chapter 2, we got that first sign that John chose in the wedding of Cana, where Jesus shows us his power, not only to supply, but to purify. Don't miss it in that turning the water into wine. The water that he turned into wine were the water that was in those six purification pots. That was the water reserved for Jews to find purity for themselves. Jesus takes it and says, I'm the purifier. And when I come and you understand who I am, you don't have to be saddled by this now. I turn it into a celebration. And remember, the best wine was saved to last. Then in chapter 3, 
we see that John the, ba- John the Apostle turn, pulls the curtain back on some very interesting personal conversations with very different individuals. First, there was our man Nicodemus, that religious, curious rabbi. Next came that faceless, nameless, immoral, bankrupt Samaritan woman. Then we have another faceless and nameless nobleman, maybe even a Gentile who served in Herod's court. And while our passage today in John 5 will start with an individual, it actually involves a much bigger audience. You might even say that the next section of John, chapter 5 through the beginning of chapter 8, we're going to see a series of confessions of Jesus. He's going to make radical statements. And then you're shown how do people respond to these radical statements of Jesus. Some will accept, some will reject, some will persecute. In chapters 8 to 12, you'll get even further into this rejection, persecution. And then really, from chapter 13 to the end of John, he spends the bulk of his gospel telling us about the crucifixion of Jesus. But it ends with the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate sign that he gives us in his collection. And so it's very important, though, in this passage, our passage today in John 5, 1 to 18, not to miss the main point. Because I would submit that the main point is not about a guy getting healed who's been paralyzed. All right, we're going to go through that. The main point of this passage is that Jesus is the only answer to the world's true problem, sin. The world's problem is not food. The world's problem is not world peace. The world's problem is not the hole that's getting bigger in the ozone. The world's problem is not bad leadership. The world's problem that is universal to everybody, in the face of all of the tragedy, is still sin. But you also see that in the midst of all this, there's this confusion in our world. Has our world ever been more confused? The one thing I think is marvelous about the the age I live in is the age of technology. I mean, between Facebook and Twitter and between Instagram and between instant access, it used to be we were on a, on a one-month news cycle, then we went to a one-week news cycle, then we went to a 24-hour uh, uh, news cycle. Now we're like into a 12-second news cycle. Have you ever noticed this? Like you can know what's happening in the world in seconds. And what has it done? All this technology that has given us access to the world has not brought us together. If anything, it's driven us apart. If anything, it's shown me at least that the world is more confused than it's ever been. It's just confused. But not only as we've seen confusion um, rise up, I've also seen a world of superstition. Have you seen this? I find the world is more superstitious than ever before. See, the world tries to make sense of all the heartbreak. The world is trying to find answers to life. And all it seems to do, as I look at it, is lead into deeper confusion and deeper bondage. But Jesus is God in the flesh. The only true source of power and authority to heal and save and he offers in our passage true well wellness but also authoritative warnings about turning religion into your savior but the ultimate lesson to be learned in these opening 18 verses of john 5 is this 
You've got to respond to Jesus' power and authority. And it's shown in His mercy and His love and His grace. And by believing in Him and letting this radical transformational belief change our lives from the, listen to me now, inside out. And as we approach the Christmas season, as the decorations in here start to change and now the reds and the greens and all these things will start to make their appearance, let's start now in this first week of November to see how magnificent it is that Jesus, God, came to us. Listen to me, church. That's just true. Jesus, as God, has come to us. That's not a fairy tale. That's not a Marvel comic. Have you seen this t-shirt? I should have given you the one. I want to buy this for myself for all of you science fiction nerds and all you comic nerds that are in our church and we've got a lot of them. Have you seen this one now that's got like Superman and Spider-Man and Iron Man and all of them and that's got Jesus in the middle and he's talking to all of them. He goes, and that's how I saved the world. I love that comic. I want to get me that one. I want, I, or if any of you want to order that, I'm an extra large. Feel free to bless me with that for Christmas. All right? Hint, hint. Nudge, nudge. Let's look at our passage. John 5, 1 to 18. I want to get through this this morning as we go to the Lord's table. Hear the word of God this morning. <clears throat> after, these, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude, the ESV has the word invalids, and then they break down the invalids for you, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. Now from this multitude that was likely in the thousands, John says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Just let the weight of that fall on you. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? If you write in your Bible, that's a great spot to put a question mark because I just think that's a bizarre question to ask a guy who's been an invalid for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? I'll talk about that in a minute. And then the sick man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. And when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Again, if you take note in your Bible... Now that day was the Sabbath. Highlight that. That is the key phrase of this passage. Here's why. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, 38 years, can't walk. 38 years, an invalid. 38, now he's walking and talking. He's one amongst thousands. He's walking. What is this that they say to him? They go up to the one that was healed and said to him, What are you doing? Why are you taking up? It's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That is just bizarre. 
And then the man, notice what he says. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said this to you? Take up your bed. Do you ever, I love that. I think Jesus has a sense of humor. God does. You know, take up your bed and walk. Who said to you, take up your bed and walk? A guy told me to take up my bed and walk. Well, where is the guy that told you to take up your bed and walk? I think we all get it. He said, take up your bed and walk. But notice what he says. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. This guy didn't know that it was Jesus. For Jesus had withdrawn. Some of your translations may have said had, had disappeared. He'd become invisible. As there was a crowd in the place afterward, Jesus found the man. Again, notice Jesus finds him. He doesn't find Jesus in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. And we're Steve Da for another exclamation point. All right. You are well, sin no more. Notice that nothing worse may happen to you. Again, if you take notes, another really bizarre statement where I'm left to scratch my head and go, what am I supposed to do with that? Then he goes on. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Doesn't seem like a very charitable thing to do. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now notice the reaction to that statement. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So very quickly, let me run you through this. Number one, look at the tragic need. Look at the tragic need. All right, I'm going to try and draw this for you. John starts with this big set of background elements in verses one to four. It was a feast. We know it was a Jewish feast. Six times in John's gospel, he tells us about a feast. And it's interesting because five out of six times, he'll tell you what feast it was. It was the Passover. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was this. But this time, he doesn't tell you. He just says it was a feast. But whatever it was, it was a feast that brought people to Jerusalem. And as always, Jesus walks by this place. Now, I would submit to you that's not a fluke. Because John tells us that Jesus goes by this sheep gate and he's walking through there and there was a person approached and that person is not random. John has gone through great lengths to tell you that it was a multitude of people. There was all kinds of need and Jesus walks up to this guy. Jesus has up to this point and John has been very deliberate in choosing his material, that Jesus deliberately knows who he's going to talk to, who he's going to see, where he's going, what he's planning. John's not simply saying, okay, next on my list to prove that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you might have life is, he's going, no, let, let me tell you about this time. Today in Israel, this place exists. We found this pool of Bethesda. This is one of these places I can tell you I've been there. I've seen this. I have been in, it's right next to this thing called the Church of St. Anne's Cathedral, 
where if you go into the basement of it, there's first century pavement and you can see games carved into the stone that the Roman soldiers used to play. I've been there. I've sung inside that cathedral. I have listed and sat there and looked down over this pool of Bethesda and tried to imagine what this scene might have been like. It is absolutely breathtaking. It is beautiful. And we really don't have a place like this in St. John's. It's hard for you to imagine what this would look like, except maybe if you think about what it's like to see of the homeless elements that have stacked up in our, in our, in our uh, city. And in fact, if you notice, there's a guy down here by this intersection by Kelsey, fella down here that rides a bike. He's kind of staked to claim that that's his, his stoplight. I'm seeing some of your heads nod. You, you know who I'm talking about. He's down there all the time. He begs for money, and when he gets enough, bless his heart, he goes up to the liquor store, he buys liquor, he goes behind the penguin sign, that's where he drinks it, and then he comes out and he starts the cycle all over again. If you go downtown, I actually saw two homeless people fighting over a door stall because the fun fellow that got there said that was his, but somebody else had set up shop, and so this guy was telling the other guy, get lost. This is about as close to that as you have in our culture, but here... This was a place, they walk in it, they sit in it, hoping, begging, trying to exist, praying to get by. I've often wondered what it would be like to have conversations with these people. I've tried to engage the man down here in conversation. His mind is really, really gone. It's really hard and disjointed to engage him in a conversation. I just pray for him. I I still haven't gotten his name, but I pray for him every time I see him. But what do you think these folks hope for? Have you ever gone or caught yourself going through the motions of life? Those times when you desperately want more? Have you ever gone through those of you that are here and you think, okay, well, I'm not on a street corner. I'm not at a stoplight. But you get busy going through life. But then all of a sudden, you just dare to wish or to daydream. What if? Have you ever done that? I've done that. As Debbie and I are trying to pay off bills, I I found myself wondering, what would it be like to be debt free? Have you ever thought about that? You know, we had our 25th wedding anniversary and thought about, what would it be like just to have the disposal money just to get up and go, let's go on a cruise. And you get daydreaming about that and you get thinking about it. You see, in Jesus' day, there was apparently this small opening in the north wall of the temple that was called the Sheep Gate. It's where the sheep washed in the pool before they were taken into the temple sanctuary. This was also the place get the coalition here, where invalids lay in hopes of being healed. Now you've got to understand, the upper class, those wishing to be ritually pure, would avoid this area. But not Jesus. Jesus is here walking. In fact, some of you will notice, maybe some of you have already noticed something peculiar in your Bible. Because if you have a King James or a New King James, your Bible probably goes verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. If you've got an ESV or an NASB or something like that, it probably goes 1, 2, 3, 5. The last of verse 3 and 4 are not there. And you notice I didn't read it because I read from the ESV. And what this is, is because sometimes you get confused because if you have a King James or a New King James, it says, and the angel of the Lord came and stirred it, and then people, and you're left to think that maybe this was some sort of really God thing, and it wasn't. You missed the point. That verse was scribally entered later to try and help you understand this was an actual superstitious thing, okay? Picture a place where there's two deep wells of water that collect all this. Both these pools of Bethesda were about the size of a football field each. There was one going north, one going south, and they're about 20 feet deep. But they were both fed by this underwater springs. 
and the place had grown in legend so much that men and women gathered there in such numbers that porticos or colonnades or porches were built, five of them, one in the middle, two on one side, two on the other. Likely they believed the women gathered in the two and the men gathered in the other and there was one in the middle. And so they gathered their hopelessness there and at least these colonnades and porches gave them some shade from the sun. So can you imagine the city, all those that thought they were good people, they said, well, listen, I don't want them around us. At least spend some money, build them a place. And so they gathered there. And what's more is one or more times a year, the water table would flood with the changing seasons and the springs would gush their overflowing water and thus stir the water in these pools. They were high in minerals, likely they were warm and then suddenly cold. They even had some sulfur in them. And so they carried some idea of of an effect of surface wounds and, and refreshments, a sense of relief. And thus a legend begins to grow. And really what you have here is nothing more than mass hysteria of desperate people like we see in the modern healing movements or those miracles you hear about. When I was in Israel, the place where they think the traditional upper room is where you go down, because if you ever get to anything in Israel and it's above ground and they tell you this was in Jesus' day, they're likely lying. You got to go down to get to it, okay? So in the place that's called the upper room where you go down about 40 feet into the ground to get to what they think is that, there's a thing there called the Acorn of Mary. It's run by an Iraqi woman. And she will tell you that if you go into this little box and you pray to the Acorn of Mary, it's literally an acorn. For some reason, they think Mary had it. And now this acorn has miraculous power. And this woman will spend an hour or more of your letter as she tells you about people that have prayed to the Acorn of Mary and then gone to the hospital and someone's been healed. Or they went and played the lottery and won. And on and on it goes. And so when you're there, people are lined up when she opens the doors to go in and pray to the acorn of Mary. There's a church in Montreal like this. You've heard the stories on the news of some statue that they went and all of a sudden they saw tears on the statue or blood on the hands or even like the shrine of Jesus that they think they found and it shows an imprint of his faith. So that must have been the material that wrapped up Jesus. Folks, listen. It's all superstition. It really is. It's not real. And this is what was happening here. So what you have now is a collection of the most hurt, the most needy, seeking something, anything. And tragedy of tragedies, they compete with each other in hopes to get into this water when it stirs. Does that not sound like us at times? Before you think, no, 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 Steve, there's no one-to-one. Let me give you a few expressions. What about this? Have you heard this one? Dog eat dog. You heard that expression? What about this one? I'm in the rat race. What about this one? You got to keep up with the Joneses. You see, whether you're lower class, middle class, or upper class, we all have these things or ways that we at least gather in places or we compete with each other. But here, the upper class, in this case, love that these folks were at least gathered in this place and they didn't have to see them or deal with them in their neck of society. This group was unclean and dirty and eyesore and aggravation. But here in the midst of this, we see Jesus. The blind are there. The lame are there. The paralyzed are there. In this place of legend where healing was supposed to have taken place for the lucky. If lightning in a bottle struck, and it sounds like the modern day lottery, doesn't it? I mean, we had 70,000 out in the ghouls for Chase the Ace. You don't think we don't have modern versions of our own superstition? right? 
in the United States when Powerball gets up to three quarters of a billion and people spend untold amounts. And what do they have? They've got their lucky numbers, right? These are the numbers. They're the birthdays of all my children and my anniversary and then my last address because that's where I was happiest. Don't act like we don't have our own set of superstitions. We do. And so here we have this. And in verse 5, we have a certain man, an unnamed man of hundreds or thousands, 38 years a cripple, whether from birth or from early childhood accident, this man couldn't walk. And there are no wheelchairs. There's no motorized chairs. You were dragged, carried, or you crawled. Those were your options. This lame man was without hope. 38 years, day after day, wondering, will this be the day that I die? I wonder when he started to simply exist and have no hope, even as he went to this place of legend. Because you know what must have happened? Where he just got in the habit, this is where you go and you lay around until the sun goes down. How many days did he do it before he finally thought, I do it, but nothing's going to change? Maybe he'd heard of others who were made whole, and I believe he didn't even believe it. I believe he knew this was legend. Whatever the situation, we have a man who is unable. But look at verse 6. Jesus seems the, sees this lame man, and our text tells us that he, he asked around and someone told him about this man's condition. Somebody goes to Jesus and said, this guy's been here and he's 38 years like this. He gets the guy's story, and no doubt all of this humanity would have talked, because you know what it's like. They even have their own pecking order. You know what it's like if you've ever seen this, right? They in some ways had their own hopeless community. And Jesus walked up to the man, looks down on him, or perhaps kneels down next to him. And I wonder what the lame man thought was going on. And then Jesus asks him the most natural, compassionate question you can ask. Do you want to become well? I, I don't know, but every time I read this, I'm like, that is such a weird thing to ask a guy disabled for 38 years. That's got to be on the top of the list of the thanks, Captain, obvious. What do you mean do I want to become well? I've read in at least a dozen commentaries about this question. And there are dozens of ideas and interpretations. Here's the one thing they all agree on. It's an odd question. Now, I don't know about you, but I've learned in life there are some questions you just don't ask. Let me tell you, men, don't ever ask a lady if she's pregnant. If you're here this morning, write it down, men. Don't do it. I've done it. It's awkward, especially when she looks at you and says, no, I'm not. You just want to crawl away and die. All right. You also don't this. You don't stop at a, outside of a road with a guy who's on, pulled off in his car. The hood is up. He's staring aimlessly in it and you drive up and you go, car trouble? I love if you've heard that redneck comedian, Bill Ingvall, he says when, when you do that, he does this, he goes, they said, just look at him next time. He said, no, no, the car wanted me to pull over and have a smoke. <laughs> That's the Captain Obvious one. And I've learned this, when you go to the hospital and you walk into someone who's in the hospital, you don't go up to them and say, so you like it here? That's the equivalent to what this question kind of looks like, right? Hey, 38 years an invalid, 38 years, do you want to become well? I really wonder, I wonder whatever, what went through everybody's mind. 
You see, Jesus is doing here, though, what he did with Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, and the noble one. He's moving beyond the physical to the spiritual. The question is not meant to address the obvious. It's meant to deal with the most important. Right. You may think the main problem is you can't walk, man. But I'm here to tell you your most important issue is to be right with God. Likewise with the other three. Like we would most assuredly do too. We miss it. We look at verse 7. Notice what the lame man says. He says, sir, in verse 7, which by the way is an address of respect. And then he addresses Jesus like someone who might be simply passing by. Look, men, I'm here. When the water stirs, I can't get in. I'm an invalid. I can't get down. And when I finally roll or flop or crawl, someone gets in in front of me. I got nobody here. And he's, you can almost hear the thickness of his accent, of, of, his, of, his, of his sarcasm. You know, thanks for stopping by, dude. You know, get your jollies. You did your good deed. You hung out with the less fortunate. You must be a politician or something. This guy is likely jaded, cynical, even defensive. Now, let me ask you, wouldn't you be? If you've been an invalid for 38 years, you've eked out an existence. Now you're here at this superstitious place, hoping maybe you might get healed. Everybody else seems to be in a better way than you are. But the irony here should grab you. Notice this. John wants us to see this lame man who needs a man to help is complaining to a man standing in front of him who is the only one who can help. Don't miss this. There in the shadow of the temple where this man longed to go stands Jesus. The Shekinah glory of God is there at the pool talking to this man. And instead of embracing him, he basically says, yeah, yeah, whatever. I need some help, fella. Move along. He longed for God. He hoped for a silly superstition. He wanted to behold, but yet he didn't believe he would ever be. So he simply spirals deeper into self-pity and victimology. Does that not sound familiar? Exactly. Wanting God to work and move, to show up and be real in your life, but then you get so fixated on what that should look like or might look like, you can't see or refuse you can't see it or you refuse it when God is right in front of you. Look at verse 8, because that's the wow part of the passage. Jesus says to him, gives him three commands. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. That's about as bizarre as the question. Get up. Take up your mat and walk. Three commands. Now stop and think about this. The one who went back in Genesis said, let there be light, speaks to this same man. Get up. And he does. What power. What authority. Maybe John wants us to be shocked back to the Old Testament. You know, Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 35 would say these words. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. It's where we get that song, he will come and save you from. Notice this, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Notice this, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Notice, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground spring of water in the hunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass will become reeds and rushes. Does this not seem like you've been reading the first five chapters of John? Water, thirsty, lame, all these things. 
rise and he does pick up your mat that makes me laugh pick up your mat it's like yeah pick it up take it with you maybe you'll need it again it's almost like jesus is mocking the situation this straw mat that could easily be rolled up and carry it listen the mat that once carried the man is now carried by the man this is what's happening and then he says and walk and walk he did look at verse 9 it says at once this happened. You see, this miracle involved no faith on the part of the man. It wasn't a production. Jesus speaks, it happens. The guy doesn't even know that it's Jesus. It's not like this guy had faith that this could happen. He doesn't even know who he's talking to. 38 years of bondage, instantly gone. And watch this, because from now until verse 18, the pastor passage never addresses. In the first eight verses, it's the lame man. It's the lame man. It's the lame man. Once verse 8 happens, now it's the man the man never the word lame used again because he's healed you want to become well turns to he became well think about it the lame man becomes the man meeting and being hailed by the god man jesus christ and this man while hope waited waiting hopelessly for the power of a pool meets and is confronted in jesus the all-powerful god of the universe in a most intimate and personal way but secondly the point not to miss. Because you almost missed the key point. This, all this is filler to the key point. Notice at the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now this is interesting. Because the poor and the hopeless collide with the religious and hopeless. <laughs> You've got the, the messed up and hopeless meeting the all put together hopeless. The same crowd of blind, lame, paralyzed, trusting in a pool, are now matched by a group of middle class and upper middle class, healthy and able religious people, also trusting in superstition. Because verse 10 literally blows my mind, okay? So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. I really can't imagine me doing this. The Jews, which included the Pharisees and a large portion of others, almost act as if the miracle hasn't even taken place. They would have known who this guy was. Someone must have. The guy's there 38 years. Now he's walking and he's healed. But all they see is he isn't playing by the rules. Now, I could spend all day here telling you what the Sabbath meant to the Jews. In fact, they have degraded it down to 39 categories, and some of them are pure foolishness. On the Sabbath in Jesus' day, you couldn't look in a mirror because maybe you would see a gray here and be tempted to pluck it, and that's working. If you spit, you had to make sure you spit in a direction opposite of where you were walking because if you spit and then your foot went over it, maybe it would drag it and would mix mud and then you've worked and you violated the Sabbath. That's just two, of, two commands out of one section of the 39 sections of the rules for the Sabbath. Today in Israel, on the hotels on the weekends, they're packed with Jews because in the hotels, they have what they call Shabbat elevators, where elevators open and close on every floor so the Jews don't have to press any buttons because that creates a spark, which is the equivalent to making fire, which means then you've worked. Then they get into hotels that all the lights are programmed to turn off and on at different times so they don't have to flick light switches. That's what they've done. They've taken this. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, you get the command of God. 
the Sabbath, but they think they missed verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. See, the Jews now believe that you had to keep the Sabbath so carefully that it, the perfect keeping of the Sabbath, would unleash not only the approval and blessing of God, but their mindset was if they could get the whole nation to keep one Sabbath perfectly, then that would actually bring the Messiah. That's how bad it was. One commentator puts it like this. A man who sits by a pool waiting for a a miraculous stirring of a pool, pool waters, goes unquestioned for decades, but is questioned on the same day the healing occurs on the Sabbath. When should God work then? Where is God to work? How, who gets to set the agenda for God to work? Oh, God, you can work as long as you do it according to our superstitions and our plan. Now look at verse 13. Because we're still at the pool. Jesus has disappeared. The man doesn't know who Jesus was. And tragically, verses 14 to 18, I fear he never will know Jesus Christ as Savior. Because then you see the controversy that leads to death, number three. And I use this point purely as a transition point because I want to shock you and I. For all of Jesus' popularity, all of his fame, all of his notoriety, because he dared to claim and act according to God's word and will, as you walk through John, you should hear and see Matthew 5, 6, and 7. See, John is describing how Jesus lived out his Sermon on the Mount. John has, Jesus has done something radically opposed to the tradition of his time. This man who has been caught up in the emotions of what happened, Jesus had healed. Wow, amazing. But wait, 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 wait. He did it on the Sabbath. My friends, the shock of this is that tradition was more important and valuable than miracle, grace, mercy, and for that matter, salvation. Can that happen here? That our traditions are more important to us than the gospel? Jesus doing what he did and now saying what he will not only causes opposition, it leads to outright rejection and then persecution and a persecution that's going to go all the way to to a cross. You see, Jesus just attacked the superstitious Bethesda with his false hope and lies. Jesus has just attacked the Jewish pharisaical religion. Jesus has just attacked legalism. Jesus has just attacked and will defeat sin. This is what he's doing. And you're meant by John as the author to start seeing what the consistent problem is with mankind. Whether you're Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, weak, strong, religious, pagan, we all have a sin problem. And so finally, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Verses 14 to 18. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. You see, we see another tragic tragic reality. Yes, for number one, the healed man ignores Jesus' admonition in favor of religious acceptance. Look at verses 14 and 15. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. So the guy's in the temple. It's where he would have been. He's likely telling a story. He's now for the first time in maybe three decades partaking in the feast that was taking place. The pool is in his rearview mirror now. He's accepted. He may have even added to the legend of the healing power. Maybe there's more people at that pool than ever before. Who knows? But then he meets Jesus and look, Jesus found him and now he gives him a fourth command. He says, 
Sin no more. But isn't that keeping with Matthew 16? Remember when Jesus said this in Matthew? Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So when Jesus says, go and sin no more, lest anything worse happen to you, what Jesus is telling this man, what John wants you and I to see, that this man's greatest need wasn't being healed from paralysis, but from his sin. And that is what kept him from God as Father. And I want you to see the irony. This man was looking to God superstitiously to heal him, and here is God in the flesh right before him, and the man will ignore Jesus' admonition and run off to the religious establishment. In essence, he's going to rat out Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said, Never be afraid of the world's censure. Its praise is much more to be dreaded. What a tragedy. To be actually touched by Jesus physically, to taste it so intimately, the mercy and grace of Jesus, and yet turn your back on it. To go through life now rejoicing, physically hold, only to face the dreaded words of Matthew 7, 20. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father is in who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? This guy is going to stand before God and say, I was healed by you. And then he's going to hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, because you didn't believe in your greatest need. And by the way, did you notice that this is the first time since chapter 1 that the word sin has come up again? In chapter 1, Jesus is the Savior who will take away the sin of the world. Chapter 5, here's a guy who's being told, go and sin no more. This man, while accepting and believing in his healing, even thankful that Jesus did it, still didn't believe that Jesus was God. Or that he need to be forgiven of a sin. He likely thought, I've suffered enough. This life I've had has been hell enough. Does that not sound familiar? I talk to people like that every day. Notice then the Pharisees reject Jesus as God. Verse 16. I find this fascinating. They can't deny his power, but they can deny his godness. They never deny that he heals the guy. And what was their argument? You can't be God because you worked on our Sabbath. God wouldn't do that. Why? Because we say so. Yes, it really does sound that stupid. That's how stupid it was. But look at verse 17. Jesus confesses who God is and declares who he is. Jesus has, remember, Jesus has called God his father. Now he's saying, I am fully the father. Kevin Van Hooser says, when doctrine fails to relate to life, it becomes an argument against the truth of Christianity. What Jesus says about God working is to show the Pharisees that they are no different than the man who was lame. They thought they had got all figured out, or at, le at the very least, they had him imagined in a way that fit what they were looking for. So to think that God is not working in our lives at all times is ludicrous, isn't it? it? Reminds me of the battle of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Remember when he's up there on Mount Carmel, and they're all freaking out trying to get their God to act? And he goes, well, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. Maybe he's on the phone and you've just gotten a busy signal. 
He literally mocks them because he says, what do, you, what do you think because God gave you the Sabbath that God just laid down and he stops being God? He never stops being God. The Sabbath was their idol, their savior. And see, ultimately, religion turns against Jesus and tries to kill him. Verse 18 sums it up. And we're back to chapter one, right? Verse 11, he came unto his own and they didn't want him. The tragedy of this, folks, is the one who would actually come to save them is the very one they want dead. This is the message. And we see this all around us today. Organized religion, faith systems, many who will name Jesus, pray to Jesus, say they want Jesus, and yet deny his word, deny his will, denounce his calls for holy living, and will eventually attempt at least to destroy who he is in favor of an entirely different Savior. Never, instead of crying out, thank you, Jesus, they would eventually, just in a matter of months, cry out, crucify him. So as we go to the table of the Lord, here, give me, let me give you three quick things and I'm done. Number one, you guys, I love you, but you need to own that this passage is about you. This passage is about you. It's about Jesus coming to a lame man, a man who admits he can't help himself. A man who admits he's hoping, looking for, even, even longing for healing, but once again in the wrong places. And plus, when the lame man and the Jewish religious crowd, they've got a view of God and a view of themselves. But they don't see their sin, they just see life's problems. They don't believe they need moral healing, just life's circumstance changes. And sadly, this man and the religion, all the while looking for God, created a form of God and acknowledged a need for God, missed when we're blinded and refused to ask the right questions of who God is and what God is doing. And friends, I love you, but that's me and that's you. Secondly, be warned by this passage that we can become this again. Superstitious, having an agenda for God that he must meet or we doubt him. Ignore him or re-explain him. You see, the lame man never comes to Jesus as God or Savior. See, Tim Keller puts it like this. If you say, I believed in God, I trusted God, and he didn't come through, you only trusted God to meet your agenda. Finally, learn from this passage. See Jesus and rejoice, respond, worship, and live. As we come to the table of the Lord, hear these words. We need to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Full stop. It's not superstition. It's not organized religion. It's not demanding God to act according to your plan. No, it's Jesus, always and only Jesus. And we're invited and challenged and called to see that nothing can make us right with God. Nothing more and nothing less. Don't let your life be a tragedy. Come to Jesus and let's remember him this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this time to share this with my friends and my family. Lord, as we now come to the table of the Lord, as we remember on this Sunday, Lord, we have remembered our fallen soldiers. May we remember you, the risen Savior. May you guide us and direct us, I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.